So we did spend a little time before we got into the show talking about our picks of the week. Um, I think in in effort to get this show moving, I'm going to move it till after the credits. So if you want to check in, check in after the credits, we can listen to that. Oh, the pitch of the week? Yeah, the picks of the week. You're right. Like most of your ideas, Chris, it takes me a second to... You're always a few steps ahead of me. It takes me a second to compute it. Um, but I think you're right. Cryptsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statement expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Lots of energy, guys. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Lots of energy. Woo! Lots of energy. Yeah. Starting strong. This is what they, they taught us in improv class 101 was uh, uh, speed of fun. So uh, we have a uh, great guest tonight, Dr. Josh Sharfstein, who is here to discuss thoughts on school reopenings in the setting of the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic, uh, a very hot topic right now. Uh, first, though... Chris, the Chew Man Chew, can you remind me, what do we do on this show? Well, we are the pediatric medicine podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics or special topics in pediatric medicine. And we are here today with one of our outstanding producers, Edward Corti. Um, it's so great to have you, Ed. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be here. And, um, you know, with with COVID-19 surging in significant portions of the United States, parents are coming into both internal medicine and pediatricians' offices all across the country with a single question, should we send our kids back to school? And this topic, it's on everyone's mind, and it feels like everything hinges on it. Our children's learning, adults' ability to leave the house for work, and the health and well-being of the entire family unit. And so before we get too far, I just want to make sure that our audience listeners understand that this conversation is not meant to be a practical guide on how to reopen schools. That information, we're going to uh, link in our show notes, and we talk about a couple times in terms of resources. Um, and every situation is different. Every school district different. Every every area is going to be different. So uh, we want to give you that information. But today, our discussion is really going to look at why we are trying to reopen and a lot of the the thoughts behind that, the evidence for reopening, why it's important and <laughs> answering those types of questions. That's right. So today we turn to an expert, Dr. Josh Sharfstein, who has navigated his share of public health crises and even written a book about them. He literally wrote the book on public health crises. <laughs> <laughs> so Ed, do you want to tell us a little more about Dr. Josh Sharfstein before, before we get into it? Sure. Yeah, I'll give a little bio. Um, so Dr. Joshua M. Sharfstein is director of the Bloomberg American Health, Health Initiative, vice dean for public health practice and community engagement, and professor for the practice in health policy and management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Previously, Dr. Sharfstein served as secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, as principal deputy commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and as commissioner of health for Baltimore City. From 2001 to December 2005, he served 
as professional staff and health policy advisor for Congressman Henry A. Waxman. He's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academy of Public Administration. Dr. Sharfstein teaches a class called Crisis and Response of Public Health Policy and Practice and is the author of the Public Health Crisis Survival Guide, Leadership and Management in Trying Times. Thanks so much, Ed. We had, this was a great show. I learned a ton. I think uh, it's going to be helpful for, for everyone who still has lingering questions and helps kind of set up a framework as we learn more and more about uh, the risks of transmission and the risks uh, associated with going back to school. Um, so without further ado, let's get to the show. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dr. Sharfstein, so much for joining the show, for coming on. We're extremely excited to have you. Um, as an informality, as we discussed, we is it okay if we call you Josh for the show? Certainly. Excellent. Um, so thanks for coming on. We'd like to uh, always start to our, get to know our guests with a few rapid fire questions. Um, and can you just give us a one-liner explanation of who you are or as an introduction of uh, yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a pediatrician, but my career has been in public health. I've worked as the city health commissioner in Baltimore, the state health secretary in Maryland, and as the principal deputy commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration before coming to Johns Hopkins about five years ago. I, you've had a very uh, illustrious, very impressive career. And I think now being on the Crib Setters podcast is really going to be the jump start to, to the, <laughs> the, the big and be better things. I am excited to be here. <laughs> yeah. So my, my favorite question is actually, it, it's sort of a funny one. What is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? So I've had uh, many failures across my career, I would say, and most of them I, I do not remember with the adjective favorite. Um, however, um, if you were to say a particular failure that I look back and, and uh, I'm not terribly sorry that it happened and that I certainly learned something from it, it was when I was the Secretary of Health in Maryland and uh, at the end of my week, I had a little routine. I would be like the last person of the entire health department. It'd be late on a Friday. I'd be sitting there and I'd just like totally relax and just click through the headlines. And uh, one day I clicked on the Washington Post and one of the headlines was health department bans the use of sunscreen at camp. And I was like, boy, that's that's a stupid thing for a health department to do. You know what? What health department was so stupid to do that? And then I read a little deeper and it's like, your health department, the health department that you're responsible for. And so um, they had a dermatologist quoted saying, um, I can't think of, you know, a crazier thing to do, something like that, than ban the use of sunscreen at camp. And I, I had to, I was sitting there trying to figure out what was going on. I called, you know, one of the people at the health department who I thought might have something to do with this. Like I had no idea what was going on. And it turned out that, you know, a group of people got together and thought of all of the ways that things could go wrong with sunscreen and just decided that it was just better that it not be put on the camp. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, camp is a lot more than just putting on sunscreen if you've ever been to camp. And, you know, I, I don't think we can, we can go into the weekend with this. And so I called our head of public relations and she she said to me when she answered the phone um i'm headed out camping see you on monday and i'm like <laughs> you're not you're not going camping unless you can get the washington post to change its headline to health department retracts policy banning use of sunscreen to camp and she's a pretty mild-mannered person but she like sprang into action and we got the uh, headline change we revoked the policy we explained you know we were sorry for the confusion 
And it was like humiliating for a couple of days. But then like for the next two years, I would tell people, look, if we make a mistake, we'll fix it. And if you don't believe me, you can see the kids are still wearing sunscreen. At camp. <laughs> uh, I like that. Dr. Sharfstein, uh, you've now been a, a teacher and a learner. Um, I was wondering what is, you know, the, the best advice that you ever received as either one, as a teacher or a learner? Probably the best advice I ever received was from a really great person, Howard Coe, who is a former health commissioner of the state of Massachusetts, a former assistant secretary of health. I knew him when he was health commissioner of Massachusetts because I was an intern in the department. And um, I had uh, been assigned to one part of the department and it was kind of slow going. And someone showed up in my office and asked whether I'd be interested in helping to write a paper and uh, gave me a box of documents and I wrote a paper and then um, someone else came by with a box of documents and I wrote a paper and was a co-author for that. And both of those papers, Dr. Ko was a co-author on, he was the senior author. And so he asked to meet with me. I hadn't really met with him before that. And I sat there and he said to me, um, you know, a lot of people talk about what they want to do and you just like got these two papers done. And in your career, if you're known as the person who gets things done, you'll go far. And that really stuck with me, you know, because I, truthfully, I do not have a lot of razzle dazzle to me. You know, I'm not, I've never been someone who um, is like a glad handler. And I, I don't mean to sound pejorative. I admire people who can do that, who can just, you know, light up a room with their very presence. But that has never been me. So I, I guess I picked the role of, you know, if you want to get something done, uh, give Josh a call and he can be helpful. <laughs> good, good. It's nice to have that reputation. It's funny. I, I think of you a lot, uh, Josh Arfstein, in the question when someone has asked me good advice and a long time ago, we had a very brief meeting where you had um, asked me what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about. And one of the things you said is find something that you, you know, whatever you're interested in, find experts that are the experts doing that thing and then call them and just keep asking questions until you annoy them and, you know, just keep going. And eventually you'll become an expert in that and you'll know all the experts and that's how you do things. And I swear, I again, it was a very brief meeting, but I remember that a lot. And I, I think about that a lot. And I, it, it's worked well for me. I don't know if you actually told me that, but that's how I remember yeah, it. I'm not, so, I'm not so sure, but I, I do think that, you know, when I was a, a medical student clinically, I, you know, was waiting for that moment when I switched from being terrified to take care of patients and feeling like I didn't know what was going on and just being so worried about what I was doing to when I would have confidence and be one of the people who would just know the right answer. And then it only gradually dawned on me that there was no switch coming. And it's only being comfortable with that fear and that not knowing and that, you know, and, and I think that's true also in policy. At a certain point, you learn enough that you feel like you can handle the fact that you could be completely wrong and that you're going to be able to deal with it if you are. That's great advice. Yeah. So um, if you guys don't mind, let me, uh, I'd like to say that kind of the first question and just a big open, broad question uh, to Josh is that as a doctor, everyone is asking me, um, and I think we all feel similarly, whether it's colleagues, families, um, friends, uh, what do I think about school openings? Um, as an expert, uh, what should I be telling them? When someone asks my opinion on school openings, what are kind of the big issues uh, uh, how, how, break it, break it down for us. 
Well, I think, you know, sometimes in medicine, it's really clear that there's one course of action. It's totally obvious what to do. And other times in medicine, you've got to figure out a path between, you know, two difficult situations. You want to, you know, maybe reduce the risk of one problem, but by doing that, you're going to create a risk of another. You know, there are certain medicines that have different kinds of side effects. You want to reduce pain, but you don't want to cause gastrointestinal bleeding, for example. So what do you do, you know? Um, and in public health, we have these dilemmas too, and, and we're in this situation because on the one hand, I certainly believe and have written that it's really important for kids to be in school and it's important for their education, which is important in its own right, and their kids who are really falling behind now, but it's important for their social and emotional development. I mean, kids really need friends and teachers and, and other experiences in school, which are really important to to them, particularly, you know, younger ages, that if you think about how much of your life was at school, it's so important. But then you also have food, 20 million kids rely on school lunch and breakfast. You have the fact that teachers and other people at school do one in five child abuse reports. So you know that there are kids who are suffering, who aren't getting help. I mean, it's a really serious situation. And I agree completely with the American Academy of Pediatrics that our policy goal should be to get kids back to school. Um, but the dilemma is we're in the middle of a pandemic and you've got an infectious disease that um, poses a risk, um, not that much of a risk to kids, particularly at younger ages themselves for their own health, um, but certainly to teachers and other staff and certainly to people at home. And so how do you balance those things? And the countries that have done this well have balanced this by really you know, working to get the community spread down and then taking precautions when open opening school again. So it's not like, of course, send everyone into school. There's no problem. And it's also not like, are you kidding me? You know, while there's a scintilla of a chance anyone might get coronavirus, we can't possibly open school. It's more like, look, this is really, there's a lot of benefit here. We just have to mitigate the risk as best we can. The challenge we have now at this particular moment that we're recording this is that there's a crazy high amount of community spread of the coronavirus in this country. We're leading the world. And so that makes it much harder to open school. But I think in the places where they can start to turn the corner on this, and I think hopefully with additional measures, with a lot more mask wearing and other things, we will, then I think it will open up some more space for taking precautions and opening school again. So I, th I think one, one important word that you said that I think a lot of people don't quite get in the nuance of this discussion is you say mitigate risk instead of eliminate risk. And that as we're trying to figure out this balance, you know, the, the benefits and risks of sending our kids back to school, you know, yes, we're sending our kids back to school, but if, as long as we mitigate these risks and there's an acceptable amount of risk, um, I, I think that seems reasonable. I guess the biggest question is, uh, what where where is that where is that line? How much risk are we willing to take in order to send our kids to school versus obviously a lot of benefits? And is that different for every community that we have out well, there? I think it's different for different families. You know, imagine if you're a seventy year old grandparent raising your children. You know, and you've got to be there for them. That may be decisive. You may not want to risk the fact that. Uh, the child may come home with coronavirus and some alternative arrangement may be necessary. And, and I definitely think that at this point, it's reasonable to give families the opportunity to, to opt out. Similarly, I particularly think teachers who are in high risk categories should have the ability to opt out and other staff. And maybe they should be you know, providing online instruction to the 
to the, uh, the, the kids. And, and that's not optimal for either of them, but it is an aspect of the compromise that we have to make. Now, if you're going to open and you're going to give people the option of school, then um, you have to decide a place to start in terms of mitigating the risk. And you have to recognize that we're going to get a lot more information about what works, what's necessary, and you need to be flexible. But a reasonable place to start is, particularly in the younger grades, um, keeping kids cohorted in a small group um, staggering the, the entrance time so there's not like a huge amount of mixing, doing a really good job with parents so that they don't send kids to school when they're sick or when anyone else at home is sick, cleaning the school, um, and um, basically, um, you know, covering some, hopefully, some options with transportation as well. We could talk about that in more detail, but that's a big challenge. So basically, you're, um, and, and mask wearing. You know, so a, a set of things, which the CDC, you know, not too long ago, I think uh, appropriately recommended as as reasonable mitigating steps uh, when school can reopen. I had a couple of quick questions. One, in that, as you mentioned, there's not necessarily a great answer and it's a risk benefit decision. It seems like the evidence uh, uh, is still lacking or can you speak a little bit about what the evidence is in that do we know enough about kids as vectors, as um, the severity of coronavirus in these patient populations? Sure. Um, yeah. so, well, I think the evidence comes from two general categories of, of sort of observations and studies. One is about transmission and the other is about, you know, we've got some school districts that have opened in different parts of the world. What have we learned? So in the first it's been complicated because transmission from kids has been studied in these, you know, weird settings where there's like quasi lockdown, you know, and then in some unusual situations in certain uh, schools and different parts of the world. And generally speaking, I think the sense of the evidence is for younger kids under 10, there's probably a somewhat less likelihood of getting infected, certainly very high asymptomatic rate, and probably a less likelihood of passing it on which means basically the chance of an outbreak at this age is lower, but it's certainly not none. And we've seen outbreaks in daycares and other schools when kids are you know, clustered together. So it can happen, but it's less. Older kids, definitely um, you know, much more likely to get mild illness than adults or asymptomatic infections. Um, and uh, also, um, are uh, not clear probably as they get older about likely to get as infected as adults. And then the question is, do they pass it on? And this recent study suggests when they're symptomatic, they probably pass it on like adults, which isn't that surprising. If you have like an 18-year-old or 17-year-old coughing on you, it's probably just like a 30-year-old coughing. But they're more likely to be without symptoms. So I think, you know, that gives you a sense that it's not like flu. It's not that the kids are just you know, massive vectors for the virus and that pose, and the kids alone pose this huge risk to society, which is what happens in a really bad flu situation. Um, but it also doesn't mean that you're like able to handle, you know, school the way it has always been. Um, then you have this other bucket of evidence, which is, you know, what other uh, countries have done. And what we can see from countries like Germany or Norway or um, Denmark is that you know, the rates go down in the community and then they spread out classes, they go outside a lot, they reduce class sizes, 
and they don't really see outbreaks of significance. Now, on the other hand, Israel started that way, didn't have outbreaks, and then said, you know, I don't think we need to do all these things. And they cut way back on their restrictions and had, you know, hundreds of kids getting infected and all kinds of problems. So, you know, I think it is reasonable at this point to start with this mitigating posture and then see, you know, which direction to go. I do think that the, one of the more tricky questions is, okay, you know, when is it safe to get started? But once you get started, I would definitely recommend following some, some of these precautions, uh, at least until we know more. Edward, do you have a question? Yeah, well, I guess uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if it fits in here exactly. But my question about um, this kind of getting ready phase um, is that in, in significant portions of the country, we could say there probably will be outbreaks if kids go back to school. So what communication strategies should school districts be using to prepare families for that situation? Well, I think the threshold question is whether it's a good idea to open or not. You know, and so you have California setting some criteria and saying counties basically can't reopen if there are too many cases. That California will give some exceptions for elementary schools um, with a really strong plan and no local outbreak there. Um, so I think that that's just really important. Everything that I've written, it's like, we got to prioritize getting kids back to school, but that means, you know, prioritizing, really reducing the level of community spread. Um, now, let's say you are opening, you know, you pass that threshold. And as you guys just said, um, we're, this is not a no risk situation. This is a, we're trying to lower risk situation. And, you know, what do you do? And it actually gets, you know, from a medical standpoint, kind of complicated because which symptoms count, you know, how much do you react to symptoms? How do you get kids quickly evaluated? There are a lot of kids with runny noses from allergies, you know, and so uh, you're going to call that coronavirus. At what point do you want to get a test? Do you get, um, do you accept a negative test? you know, given the potential for a false negative. So, you know, you really need a strong, well-thought-out series of protocols and you need to be assessing whether or not um, those protocols are working. Uh, I do think that when there is clearly identified um, infections, hopefully you've got, you know, everything limited to one cohort and hopefully you're taking some measures within that cohort that it's not even spread around that much by the time you figure it out. But it is really important to be able to investigate clusters and to see whether you've got a bigger problem than you might have just thought with one positive test. So I, I think that we're sort of now going into some of the details of what you had discussed a little earlier. And I, I want to dig into this a little more. So you talked about cohorting uh, classes and students, and you sort of brought this up again. Um, so what you're saying now is the reason why we cohort or we're gathering our groups of of um kids and teachers together and then they move to different classes together so that if someone within that group becomes sick then all of a sudden you can isolate that group quickly is that correct yeah i mean the students should just be parked in one classroom they don't have to move around that much i mean they can when it's their time to go out for recess they can go out to recess um you know if they're teachers who are going to come in um for special instruction they'll be at the front wearing a mask you know but the kids will be together Gotcha. And this is to help us, especially with contact tracing and, and, and monitoring for symptoms, especially if they do come out. Is that well, right? The main reason to do it is to limit the impact of one infection. So if you had one infection and the child is in classes with 200 kids over the course of a the day, then conceivably they've exposed the entire school. In this way, it's really they've just exposed their little group. Now, at some ages, 
the kids are sitting at desks, they're wearing masks. You know, one child gets sick, there's no guarantee at all anyone else will get sick. You know, now kindergarten or daycare, the kids in that little cluster are going to be, you know, in each other's faces. It's possible that, you know, they could cause an infection with somebody else. But, um, but you know, that, that requires some vigilance. But basically, you're talking about the worst case scenario being a few other kids rather than the worst case scenario being the, a whole school from a single case. You know, that goes into the question for me where a lot of people come up with these scenarios or what if one kid has viral symptoms in the cohort or what if, you know, someone has an exposure that's in the cohort and everyone kind of comes up with these scenarios. It's honestly, it's reminiscent right now of the defund the police scenarios where everyone's coming up with something that says, then, then what do you do? And I think one of the things that at least I struggle with and a lot of people struggle with, at least in the, the situation of, of. COVID in the schools is a certain level of uncertainty. Do you have any thoughts or guidance of how we can address the scenarios of, you know, the kid has viral symptoms or one child was exposed or do, is the class completely considered contaminant or, or most importantly, how do I sound smart when someone's asking me these questions? So um, I think it's important to have a clear plan and to be assessing whether that plan is working. So you know, you could make different judgments based on different situations. Um, and, you know, let's just say that you have a very um, uh, mild symptom somewhere in the in that cluster. You know, um, you might just say, well, that child should go to the doctor. Report in, the parent calls, the child woke up with a little runny nose, you know, and the doctor could assess the situation. And for just that, it might be okay to keep the child out until the symptom resolves, you know, um, and so that, you know, that might be enough. Now, of course, if you do that enough over time and suddenly the whole class is getting sick, then you go, well, that was not good. We really should have cut that back. But for, you know, one of the mildest symptoms, which could be many, many other things, that might be a reasonable protocol to develop. But basically, we're going to have to develop a decision tree that is basically stands the test of time, you know, is able to to do that, and you may start a little more conservatively than where you wind up, you know. Um, and it may be that when a, a child has symptoms, you're going to say, "Okay, that pod has to stay at home until we get a negative test result, and then we'll let everybody go back to school." So, I, I don't think I wouldn't pretend to be the person who would be the right person to, to to write all the details of that first protocol. But what I do know is it's really important to track the results of that because you may have to dial it up or dial it back. So one of the most disturbing parts of, of COVID-19 have been the health disparities um, with Black and Latinx populations suffering at higher levels. And how does the return to school uh, have a potential impact on, on those health disparities? Let's just start by saying that um, not being in school has an enormous um, impact on health disparities because uh, kids who don't have access to school are at risk for doing worse, for falling behind academically. And kids who are already um, disadvantaged are most likely not to have the internet access, um, the ability for their parents to stay home with them, uh, other things. Whereas we're already seeing that private schools, for example, professional parents are making all kinds of new plans and um, hiring more people in the case of private schools, hiring teachers in the case of you know, well-off parents. And so you, you can almost see the, you know, exacerbation of the educational divides happening right in front of our eyes. 
Um, and so, you know, I think it's um, that aspect of it is huge. And then in going back to school, it, 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 they're just um, huge questions of equity. And, you know, Edward, I remember when you were at the School of Public Health and we worked together on a project about the physical conditions of schools in Baltimore. And we found that they were in the worst physical conditions of any school in the state. And that during the last five school years, children lost about 220,000 full days of school simply because of problems with the physical infrastructure. So these are, you know, places that don't have good HVAC systems. Many of the HVAC systems are completely past their, you know, due date. And make, you know, all that complicates the ability to get good ventilation. Um, it, it also uh, undermines confidence of teachers. So, you know, at every level, the level of being out of school and the level of going back to school, there are inequities. And I also like to say one other thing, which you take a huge step back. Um, you know, we're really not talking about a situation where things were going fine before the pandemic. You know, there were just uh, gross educational inequities um, in this country and um, huge variation in access to quality schools by where people live, by the color of their skin. And um, we, as in, in the United States, haven't really paid a lot of attention to that. And then you have a pandemic and kids, particularly poor kids, um, are being asked to sacrifice. You know, they're sacrificing their education. They've already sacrificed a lot with their education. They're not even at the highest risk, but they're sacrificing for the rest of society. And I think this is a lot broader than just a question of when kids go back to school. For me, I think the question is whether we are able to take this moment and realize what a difficult position we've put kids in. And can we, as a society, um, shift gears, um, take on child poverty, take on child hunger, take on some of these fundamental issues that um, hold so many kids back in this country and keep them from a fair chance at opportunity. Um, to me, that is, you know, the, the big picture here. It's not, you know, what exactly is the protocol for how many symptoms you have before you can come back to school. And have you seen any innovations in working to address those? I know, at least in the state of Rhode Island, there was a great public-private partnership of getting the goal of getting everyone broadband, of everyone Wi-Fi. Rhode Island is a small enough state that I think that was achievable. But are there, in the setting where COVID is exposing these inequities and disparities, is there a way that people are taking advantage of uh, trying to address them and coming up with new innovative ways to uh, improve education in, in some ways? Um, I can't say that, you know, there's, we're at that point right now. At this point, education is just sort of in this yeah. um, crisis moment over whether even to open its doors again. But I hope we don't lose sight of this bigger issue. And when we come out of this with massive disparities in educational attainment, you know, we need a Marshall Plan like investment to fix that. And kids really deserve it. So, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is a good takeaway for me and others is the concept of opting out that you mentioned. If a, if a child's family deems the risk to be extremely high because of uh, some immunocompromised state or, or an older caretaker, or if a teacher has a similar um, high risk and wants to opt out, it sounds like that we support that and that would you know, be a way to do it. That being said, you know, with 
you know, so many teachers not wanting to feel that this risk is achievable. How do we address the possibility of teachers saying no or just not have or, or ancillary staff saying no or, you know, how, how can we kind of balance this risk, I guess, of, of addressing people's concerns, mitigating the risk, but also. Uh, yeah, well, we're in a strange, strange situation, which is understandable. Part of it, at least, is understandable where, you know, everybody is assessing the risk to themselves. And, you know, when it comes to yourself, you tend to be pretty uh, risk averse, right? And everybody's naturally risk averse. So we have a lot of people very risk averse for themselves. And yet, as a society, we're not that risk averse. As a society, we don't want to um, crimp the economy. We don't want to shut down bars. We don't want to keep people from the beach. We don't want to do any of the things that might actually control the spread of the virus. Um, you know, overstating the case a little bit. But if you compared how we deal with risk individually with how we deal with risk socially, you know, it's like a setup for the problem that we're in here, where we have high rates of community transmission, and then nobody, then you know, everybody's afraid to go out and do things that may be necessary because the risk that they are individually in. I mean, I'm just observing that. And it's it's really amazing. You can see two stories next to each other, you know, people protesting that, you know, mask wearing at bars. And then the next story is, you know, teachers terrified to go back to school. Um, and those stories are pretty linked, even if they're not expressly linked. Um, now, I do think that it's really important for people to feel safe um, and to feel that, you know, everything's being done to mitigate risks that are there in the workplace. I mean, we saw a lot of this with healthcare workers, healthcare workers, you know, not that excited to be taking care of patients without adequate PPE and, you know, they deserve adequate PPE. And it was really a horrible tragedy. And I don't think we would want to put, you know, healthcare workers in a position of going in without masks and face shields and all the kinds of things you need to take care of patients. Now, it's a different situation in the school, but the concept that people need to feel safe in their place of work is still the same. And um, how do you do that? Part of the challenge, like I was just saying, is that when teachers um, can see that there really has been a massive disinvestment in the infrastructure of a school, then they may feel like, yeah, good luck that they could, you know, fix this for COVID. They couldn't fix the air conditioning when I called a hundred times, you know. So it's, uh, you're, you're starting from like a credibility gap as a school system, but I think you can overcome that, you know, if you're able to um, demonstrate that it's, you know, the appropriate precautions are being taken. I, I'm guessing that in some major school districts, the um, schools won't just all open at once like a light switch. They'll probably start open a few. They'll demonstrate to parents what it's like. They'll have teachers explaining, you know, all the precautions that are being taken. And hopefully um, you'll have teachers, particularly those who aren't in the high risk groups, uh, realize that this is worthwhile um, because there's so many kids who need them. And I think that there are many, many teachers who would love to be helping their students right now. It's very, very hard for teachers to be away from them. And, you know, with the appropriate controls and a little bit of community um, improvement, I think you could see a lot of teachers who'd be willing to go back. But it's, you know, the politics is not helping here. I mean, it's just not helping. Because when you've got people saying, like, there literally is no problem, what is wrong with these teachers? Then, you know, you almost want to say, like, what teacher wouldn't be nervous about that kind of statement? I mean, it's like an almost perfect example of bad risk communication to tell people there's no risk when there's obviously some risk. Are there things that the 
local government, whether it's a school board, a city government, a state government, or the federal government can do to help address these risks and do to support teachers, school systems? Yes. Um, it starts with money. You know, I think school systems need additional resources for a bunch of different things. Um, hopefully, Congress will provide some shortly and it'll filter its way down. But, you know, they may need to hire more staff. Um, they may need to get more space, um, more transportation options, uh, more money for different kinds of community engagement, certainly more money for um, laptops and other things to help kids connect, cleaning supplies, you know, uh, protocols uh, around testing. You know, there's there's a lot, I think, that, that needs to be put into place. You know, and, and I do think it's possible. I think it would be better if there were some stronger national standards in this regard. I do think there is room for local flexibility in terms of figuring out what the right way to handle um, a particular school might be because how much room they have, how many kids, there's so many individual things that are going on. But but we're dealing with across many aspects of COVID is almost no real standard coming from the federal government. and. It, that has like a double effect. First, there's no standard coming from the federal government. And second, the states can be really nervous about adding a standard. So then it's like no standard goes down to the locals. And so before you know it, you're like a school superintendent, a local school superintendent. And like literally it's all on your shoulders. There's no guidelines. There's no expectations. You just have people yelling at you, you know, um, from different levels of government and the public. And that's just not a good situation. So I, I think the sort of absence of a coordination and direction from the top is really harming this aspect of the response like it is many others. So um, because there's these lack of guidelines, I mean, we, we still have to work towards opening these schools and getting getting kids in. Like what what type of guidance if if I'm a primary care phys- physician or and I have a parent who happens to be on the school board and working with the superintendent, like what can we give them to help them work on these practical things? Because every every school, every district, every situation is going to be a little different. And if they have no guidelines coming from the federal or state government, what what can we do to help them? Well, it's it's a hard thing to fix, you know, one primary care doctor at a time. I, I think it's important to um, though be there, uh, be able to answer questions, help um, particularly with the interplay between the educational system and the healthcare system. So like a primary care doctor may be a really good problem solver around those particular protocols, as well as how to get kids testing in their community relatively rapidly. I think that that would be a good focus. Um, You know, the bigger question of when to open and how, I think it's good to read, um, you know, different documents that have come out. The National Academies report is a good one um, that, walks through the evidence to be able to relate the evidence for people. Um, and I think particularly pediatricians have to um, explain the value of going back to school to counter people who might just say, I don't see what the big deal is, just keep it closed for two years. Gotcha. And I do want to say that, you know, um, well, and that we'll definitely leave these in the show notes as well. But, you know, the CDC has a really great document preparing a safe return to school, as well as the AAP's uh, guidelines. And and really, we um, we really should encourage um, these school systems as, as they work on reopening to at least look at those guidelines to help them with their individual cases, too. Yeah. And the CDC's initial guideline, I thought, was um, helpful and specific. I think the recent document that was put out, which was more of a cheerleading document for kids to go back to school, 
um, that by news reports may not have even been written by the CDC in, in parts um, was was disappointing in some regards. I think I think we need the CDC to be an agency that explains its recommendations in detail, clearly, and with science, um, and doesn't come across like it's parroting a political agenda. Well, I, I had a, a question uh, about, you know, we've talked about all of these different alternatives, you know, some where some people don't feel comfortable going and some where maybe it's not full time. And I was just wondering, uh, Dr. Sharfstein, you know, what do you see as worth it? You know, is it all or nothing or are there some middle grounds that will be actually useful and necessary this year? So I do think, and going back to the earlier question, you know, I do think there'll be a lot learned about education, just like there's a lot learned about health this year. We'll have to see how kids respond to a couple of days in school, a couple of days out of school. I'll tell you my intuition as, you know, pediatrician and parent is that uh, kids will take it, you know, you give them a couple mm-hmm. of days, they'll, they'll take it, they'll yeah. figure out what to do in the other days, you know, that it'll really help um, in most circumstances. But of course, that could be studied too. Um, really figuring out alternative ways of teaching is going to be important. Um, and I wrote a um, paper with the education dean at the School of Education, Johns Hopkins. And, you know, his view is that it's not a bad thing to have curricula that can be moved either online or in person. Um, kids may be able to, um, some kids may be able to learn better under those circumstances. So, you know, it could be that we learn a lot about alternative ways of teaching in this regard, but I certainly don't think it's all or nothing. It does seem a little weird to me that there are so many of these programs like going to school for two days or three days and then not where I would think that you have the exposure or not in that if you're shaving, maybe I'm wrong, but is that... It, you, the, the reason for those is not because of the exposure. The reason for those is to reduce the density of kids in I school. See. So, that so someone's if you always had there. more space, so, so there is a really interesting trade-off. Like if you were in charge of a school system, you could say, let's bring all the elementary school kids back every day and let's have them take classes in the high schools and let's keep the high school students at home. So that is a path that some of the European countries took hmm. because the high school students can transmit the infection a lot better than the elementary school students. So let's, sure. let's hire a few extra staff. Let's you know, spread the kids out a lot. And in fact, the National Academies really emphasize bringing the younger grades back. So I think there may be a little bit of a trend. You see that also in California saying they'll make exceptions for elementary schools. You know, maybe we should be focused there. I think that would be a reasonable decision for a school district to make. I will say this though, there are certain kids who um, really do need to be in school. I mean, they are not doing well at home. And there are some high school students like that. And this is a great example of, I think, that teaching point about equity, that equity is not the same as giving everyone the same thing because kids need different things. Um, and so, you know, a uh, high school student who's going to be totally self-sufficient at home is very different from a high school student who's homeless, you know, who doesn't really have the ability to um, log in very easily from home. And, and really, school is the anchor in their life, you know, so you've got to recognize that difference and recognize that treating those two kids similarly means giving a lot more to the child that is homeless. And there are issues like that for elementary school students too. So, you know, to me, I think it's completely legitimate for schools to treat kids differently and not have a one size fits all kind of approach. One thing you had also mentioned was access to testing and funding for testing. And I, in looking at the AAP guidelines, 
was a little surprised that they did not push universal testing quite as much or emphasize the need for testing when it does seem like testing and quarantining would be a reasonable strategy. What are your thoughts on on testing children in, in schools or if that is a sure. point? So it's really important if there are symptoms that are concerning for coronavirus for kids to get tested quickly because then it allows you to know whether you're dealing with an outbreak. Potentially, you can investigate whether there's an outbreak. You know, case identification is one of the bedrock foundations of disease control. Now, this question of universal testing is a little bit different, though. Um, and this is a question not just for K-12 education, it's a question for universities, it's a question for workplaces, like does it make sense to be doing a massive amount of testing of people without symptoms to, to try to pick up the odd case? The problem you have with that, of course, is that the tests aren't that good right now. Um, and it takes, a, in the sense that it takes time to run the test. You know, you may not get the results for a couple days at best. Um, and then um, the tests themselves have a potential for false positives. And when you're dealing with a low enough risk population, it doesn't take much to have a kind of low positive predictive value. So you wind up getting positives that um, aren't true and you're chasing your tail and you're testing everyone and you're causing all kinds of anxiety. And, you know, are you really controlling the disease or not? I, I think that those resources are better placed, hiring people's spacing the kids out, getting more transportation options. I think the testing resources are better um, focused on really being able to test kids quickly. Now, that's a, these days a lot easier said than done. You know, you have these crazy long delays for testing, which basically makes the testing almost worthless. Certainly from a contact tracing point of view, waiting two weeks for results, I mean, it's, it's completely pointless. So um, I think that figuring out some way to get kids tested relatively expeditiously um, would be a big help to, to reopening school. So Josh, um, I sort of touched upon this before, but I, I sort of really want to know, what are the best resources for us as pediatricians, primary care providers, and you know, possibly even school administrators to, to have, um, to look at as we work on reopening and possibly making changes and recommendations? So I would start with some of the reports that have been written. There's a great report from the National Academies. There's a great report from Vital Strategies. Um, and then you can also follow what other places are doing. Johns Hopkins has a school reopening plan tracker. Um, there's an e-school initiative at Johns Hopkins that has all kinds of information, webinars, updates about um, the question of reopening schools. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're just going to also have to read the news and see what happens because, you know, by the time this podcast airs, the whole situation might have changed in one regard or another. Um, and just be humble to the fact that it's not just read up on everything and you're an expert. It's, you know, just like in clinical medicine, be um, somewhat afraid that you don't really have all the right answers and continually look uh, for better information. That's great. Um, are there big takeaway points that you want to give listeners? Sure. I would say the path to reopening schools, which is a really important goal, is control the infection in your community and take precautions in the school. That's the path. And um, control your infection in the community. A lot of places have done it. Many places around the world have done it. Your own community may have previously done it, but you got to face up to what the challenges are and take the actions at the level of the community to, to protect people. And as those cases start coming down, don't just 
you know, release all the pressure and let everyone go running around, prioritize opening schools, um, explain why it's important, and uh, provide the resources to the school system and put in place the precautions that are necessary. It really does matter for kids. And, you know, I guess I would also say that this is just something to appreciate that kids are really sacrificing for all of us by staying out of school. And someday we should repay that debt. So, Dr. Sharfstein, um, you've actually, you know, you've been in public health for a long time and you've even written a book about public health crises. But even for you, this is probably a massive crisis. Um, what are you optimistic about during this difficult time for everyone? Well, I'm optimistic that we're not stuck in this condition forever. I think that it can be easy when we're in these groundhog day-like days where every one day blends into the next to think that we're just stuck here. Um, but if you look back, you see how much we've learned, um, how much medicine has advanced, um, and I think it's going to continue to advance. I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic to use Dr. Fauci's phrase about vaccines. Um, convalescent serum seems promising. And I think that, you know, we're going to be making uh, steps forward. Uh, maybe not every step a leap, but steps forward. Um, we'll have more mask wearing now that it's slowly getting depoliticized. We'll have... Um, greater therapeutic options, even some potentially preventive options um, like uh, monoclonal antibodies or, um, or convalescent serum, even before a vaccine. And then we'll, we'll get a vaccine. Now, the vaccine may not be perfect. It may not be a leap forward, but it may be another step forward. And gradually, I think we're going to be able to rein this in. So I, I do look forward and think like, you know, we're not stuck in this position uh, forever. And we'll have learned some pretty serious lessons. And, you know, my class, my book that I teach about crisis, it is about how things that never were possible before suddenly become possible in crisis. You know, it was um, a crisis of medication safety that got us the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. We only have clinical trials for medications because of thalidomide, you know, and that crisis. We have um, moments in time when people really reconsider some of the assumptions that are there. And I think we're gonna have one of those moments here. I think people are gonna look back and say, boy, we thought we were a country that had health and healthcare down. You know, we were ranked number one in preparedness for a pandemic and we did the worst. You know, um, we don't wanna have that again. We don't want hundreds of thousands of people to die. Um, what are we gonna learn? And that doesn't guarantee an outcome. I'm not necessarily optimistic we're going to get the right answers to that question, but I'm optimistic that question will get asked. I, I don't think we're just going to just jump back to our old way of doing things. I think there's going to be a moment for us to really think about it differently. Um, think about kids differently, I hope. Think about public health differently. Think about equity differently. And so, you know, I think it's in all of our interest to be preparing for that conversation and to be thinking about how we make the strongest case uh, for what we think needs to be done uh, when those questions get asked. Uh, this is this has been wonderful. Thank you so much Thank you. for, Thank you for everything. Much. Are there is there anything that you would like to plug or anything that we can um, uh, send our listeners to, to check out? Um, well, I would never um, turn down an opportunity to tell people to check out Public Health on Call, which we're about to launch our second season of. 
Um, we've had 1.5 million downloads or so, so far. Uh, we cover a lot on the pandemic, uh, a lot on racism and equity, and we're gonna be branching out to other public health topics as well. And uh, we have a special listener feature where people can write us at publichealthquestion at jhu.edu and we try to answer questions either on the podcast or through entire podcast episodes. Awesome. I, I just recently discovered this. It was, uh, I learned a lot. You have everything from correctional facilities to COVID to Camus. So it's a good, uh, it's a good range of topics and it's good stuff. Great. great. Well, it's been great uh, being on the podcast and you guys have uh, quite an operation here. So um, <laughs> Um, I'm very impressed. I'm going to be taking back some of the things I've learned through our podcast, and uh, I wish you the best. Thank you so, so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining. Thanks. Okay, take care. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get the show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, and to do it, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Edward Cordy and Dr. Nicholas Lee. Thank you for joining us tonight, guys. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Edward Cordy. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. See ya. Justin, do you have any picks of the week? I do have a pick of the week. Uh, this week, it is COVID-related. So usually, uh, Josh, we do a pick of the week about a book or a movie or show that we think is interesting, uh, some media consumption. But I just recently discovered the website, explaincovid.org, which I learned about after listening to uh, Josh Sharfstein's podcast, Public Health on Call, um, that does a great job of uh, breaking down, demystifying a lot of the COVID questions about transmission and spread, and is a good resource, I think, for patients and providers um, together. Chris, how about you? Anything, anything, uh, anything worthy of mention? Yeah. So as we're actually preparing for this episode, one of our um, team members here at the Cribsiders suggested a recent episode from a podcast I had not listened to before called Charting Pediatrics. And they've done uh, just a slew, several dozen episodes just um, looking at COVID, but um, they're out of Children's Hospital Colorado. And um, they, it's just a great pediatrics podcast. And it's definitely going on my RSS feed. So I encourage everyone to check out the podcast and their episode on school reopening. Nice. Edward, how about you? Um, yeah, I think, you know, the only thing that's really gotten, gotten me excited recently was this, uh, app that's not new to most people, but, uh, I've been using called Strava and it, it helps yeah. me see other people, how much they've been running. And then when I normally would stop, I run like five more minutes <laughs> because I saw that they, they went a little farther. So it's, it's actually pretty helpful. Positive Good. peer pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I can I add one? Here? Please, absolutely. I'm going to go a little bit more old school here and recommend "The Plague" by Albert Camus. I saw uh, that on your I saw that on your podcast too.
Uh, that was a fun podcast episode. Tell us about it. Tell us about I, the plague. The plague is a book uh, written in 1947 about the bubonic plague in Algeria, uh, in a town in Algeria. And it describes what happened there. Um, and it is not just a little bit relevant. Like you're reading it and you just get this overwhelming sense of I'm reading about COVID in 2020. And this is you know, well over 50 years later. And um, I'll just give you an ex a couple examples. You know, they talk about how people sort of deny how serious it is, don't pay it, you know, how the um, people try to rationalize the case counts as they're going up in all kinds of ways. They talk about how the plague reveals all kinds of inequities in the society. Um, all these things are kind of stripped away and you see the, the class chasms, for example. Um, but the part that I also like is that it talks about how um, the microbe, uh, in this case, the um, bacteria, um, is just going to do what it's going to do. And what really matters is what the rest of us do. And so this is a quote. He says, what's natural is the microbe. All the rest is a product of the human will of a vigilance that must never falter. And of course, you think about what's happening in the United States now, and vigilance is faltering. You know, and people are constantly imagining that they're through the worst of it or what's going to happen isn't going to apply to them. But there's sort of this relentless logic to the infectious agent. And it's really the variable is us. Um, and the interview that I did for the podcast was with the um, chair of the Department of English at Johns Hopkins. Um, and uh, it was really a tremendous interview. Uh, he's an expert in uh, the philosophy, uh, French philosophy and literature, and um, highly recommend that episode. Okay. I, uh, as a gift, when I finished medical school starting residency, someone gave me a framed copy of The Myth of Sisyphus, the Camus story about implying that even if you're always working against uh, a cog in the system where the ball's going to come back down, that still doing work is uh, can bring joy, even if it's a Anyway, I yeah, inspirational at the time. Let's let's jump into let's jump into let's jump into some content. Um, 